Welcome to Beyond Your News Feed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. After a summer break of a few weeks, uh, we are back recording episodes about politics, uh, drawing on the expertise of my colleagues in political science and other Providence College faculty members. Uh, This semester, we hope to uh, emphasize especially the upcoming election. Um, We're going to be looking at the election from a variety of different uh, points of view. Uh, This is, of course, an historic election, and we'll try to bring listeners some insight into what's going on. Um, For obvious reasons, political scientists have studied American elections intensely for decades and know a lot about how they work. In fact, I would go so far as to argue that because of the many years of intense study and analysis of mountains of data, political scientists have more complete and reliable knowledge about the behavior of the American electorate than of any other political phenomenon. Thanks to this knowledge, political science can provide insight into the forces driving elections, including this one. We look forward to looking at many aspects of the upcoming election this fall, But today, I thought we would focus on the presidential election. And joining me to discuss the presidential election are my colleagues Matt Guardino and Adam Myers. Adam is our department's expert on political parties and state politics, and Matt's expertise is in the area of public opinion and the media. So welcome, Adam and Matt, once again, to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thanks, Bill. Great to be back. Thanks, Bill. Glad to be here. Okay, so I stayed up late watching the Democratic Convention last night. We're recording on the day after the first day of the Democratic Convention. Uh, It was a bizarre experience, a virtual convention. What do you guys think? Yeah, it was quite extraordinary to see all of these speeches uh, being given in empty rooms with no applause, at least no immediate applause to the, you know, the most potent lines. Having said that, you know, I thought all things considered, it went rather well. It was a relatively smooth operation and Michelle Obama's speech at the very end was quite powerful. Yeah, I was impressed that they kept to their timetable. Actually, that seemed to work out better virtually than it does when they have people in a big arena where the conventions always, speakers always take longer. You have to deal with a crowd applause that goes on longer than it needs to, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't have have any of that, so they could quickly go through each of the speakers and each of the speakers uh, uh, got in uh, what they wanted. Matt, any thoughts? You're the media guy. Matt? Yeah, so I, I agree with what both of you said. I thought that uh, I was a little skeptical about how it would come off as as kind of a media production, but I would say that in, on that score, it went relatively well. Um, uh, I think there's something to be said, perhaps, for a little less pomp and circumstance and spectacle, uh, perhaps a little more focus on the substance of what the speaker said. Uh, I thought it was well produced, and I thought that in particular, of course, well, of course, I thought Michelle Obama's speech was fantastic. I thought... Bernie Sanders' speech was very good as well and important. Uh, And I thought the focus on ordinary voters in different ways and what they had to say 
um, maybe came off a bit better in a virtual format than it might in an actual convention where sometimes those sorts of things seem more staged. For some reason, I, I just got the impression as a viewer that um, it was easier to kind of connect with what the ordinary voters were saying in their experiences through the virtual format, oddly enough, than through a big television production. And having read about it, there are some parts of it that were pre-recorded and others that were not. And what I found interesting was that I, I really couldn't tell the difference. I really couldn't tell what was live and what was pre-recorded. And I think that was very good for creating kind of a, a smooth presentation. Uh, and like you, Matt, I thought the overall, the, 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 the testimonials from ordinary voters was very positive. I thought it was a really wise choice to put uh, Bernie and Michelle Obama back to back uh, at, at the very end. Uh, both made, I thought, very powerful speeches. I was impressed in the way that Bernie Sanders uh, uh, spoke about uh, the, the degree to which our democracy is at stake in the election. Uh, and, uh, and, that, and that was a very powerful statement. And I think, you know, if that's repeated, uh, we'll go a long way to inspire, I would think, a lot of Democratic voters. I would kind of echo that and extend that, Bill, that, you know, I thought they paired really, really well together in terms of Sanders really made a very strong policy-based case in a, in a case about the institutions. It was followed up fantastically by Michelle Obama making uh, a case about character or lack of character and leadership. Um, so they're almost like two sides of the same coin, and they both um, delivered their speeches extremely effectively. Okay. Uh, well, I don't want to dwell too much on the convention. We've only had one day, and perhaps we ought to have a podcast uh, in a couple of weeks after both of the conventions, and particularly talk about what the impact the conventions are going to have on the race. So let's back up a bit and talk about uh, the general shape of the, the presidential race uh, as we sit here uh, towards the end of August. Uh, the election's only three months away, uh, and at least for the last couple of months, uh, it looks like Biden has carved out a rather large lead in the polls. Uh, uh, as of uh, yesterday, uh, I guess the polling average was giving, giving him about an eight to nine uh, point lead over, over Trump. Uh, what do you all think that means? Uh, is, this, uh, is, is, is there a Biden win uh, locked in? Uh, uh, I'm sure you're both going to say no, but uh, I'm going to ask the question anyway. Adam, what do you think? So, yeah, I, I would say no. I would go further, and I would say that, you know, that, that healthy lead in the national polls that you were referring to that Biden has, it means something, but it doesn't mean all that much. Um, and so you are correct. If you look at the national polls right now, uh, Biden consistently leads by between 5 and 10% in almost all of them. For the vast majority of those polls, that lead is within the margin of error. And so I do think that if the election were held today, and if we decided presidential elections by a national popular vote, um, and if we had some way of ensuring that all Americans who wanted to vote could vote and would have their votes counted, um, if all of those conditions obtained, then I think Biden would win, but none of those conditions obtained. So, so let me just kind of go through them. Uh, first off, Obviously, the election isn't being held today. It's being held over two months from now. And a lot can change between now and then. 
Um, and if you look at the historical patterns, what you find is that, that the state of a presidential race at around this time in, in mid-August is not really a very good indicator of what happens in November. I mean, we can just go back to four years ago. At this point in time in the 2016 presidential campaign, Hillary Clinton also enjoyed a healthy lead in the national polls, not as large as Biden's lead, uh, but a, a healthy lead nonetheless. And we all know how that turned out. Um, and then, of course, the next thing to point out is that we don't decide presidential elections via national popular vote. We have this thing called the Electoral College. And so, as most of our listeners probably know, what matters in the Electoral College are the battleground states. And so, if you look at the polls in the battleground states, what you find is a somewhat different um, picture. And I'm, I'm really interested in, in the four states that I think are going to be most important, those being Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Florida. And in all of those states, um, the, the, the state-based polls show Biden leading, but generally speaking, within the margin of error, right? And as statisticians know, um, and as I try to impart to our students, a, a, a lead within the margin of error is not really a lead that we can have a lot of certainty about. Um, and so I do think that, you know, Trump has a, a pretty narrow uh, path to victory um, in the sense that it doesn't seem likely to me that he's going to be able to pick up um, any states that he uh, lost in 2016, with the possible exception of Minnesota and maybe Colorado. But um, I think he can easily recreate his Electoral College victory in 2016. I shouldn't say easily, um, but I think it's possible. And I should also point out that he can win this presidential election uh, by falling just short of winning all of the states that he won in 2016. So for example, he could lose Florida and win Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin and win the election. He could lose uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan um, and win the presidential election just by winning Florida and Wisconsin, along with all the states that he uh, won in 20, all the other states he won in 2016. So there are a variety of ways for Trump to win, um, even given the current state of the race. Um, and then of course, the last point I, I wanna make is that you know this has been getting a lot of coverage uh, but I think it's important to emphasize the pandemic creates a massive layer of uncertainty um, on, you know, all of the general dynamics of the presidential race that I just referred to. Um, this is because a huge percentage of Americans are going to be voting by mail this year. Um, the, uh, the voting by mail is, is becoming a very politicized issue, uh, thanks to, uh, you know, President Trump's rhetoric on, on, the, on this particular voting modality. Um, a lot of states um, are going to be dramatically expanding their voting by mail operations this year. And so many people are gonna be voting by mail in states without much experience with this particular modality. Uh, and uh, there's, a tremendous, um, there's a tremendous number of potential problems, which maybe we can get into um, concerning voting by mail that could create um, I think a lot of chaos and uncertainty around election time. So for all of those reasons, I really, really think that the narrative that, that Biden has this thing locked down is, is, is far from complete. You want to push, push back on that a little bit, Matt? Um, just a, a little bit, actually. I largely agree with what Adam said. I mean, it's, I agree completely that the idea that Biden has it locked down is, is, is untenable. 
Uh, I think that there's a very real possibility that the president could, could win the Electoral College um, for the reasons that Adam said. On the other hand, uh, and, and clearly the margin of error is important to take into account with all these polls, especially the state polls. On the other hand, I, I would say that if we leave um, aside just for a thought experiment, the pandemic and the likely voter and electoral administration problems, I'll talk about those in a moment, Biden is actually in a pretty favorable position and, and, other, and under normal conditions, we might say that he's in the driver's seat and that Trump has quite a bit of an uphill climb at this point. Um, part of the reason that I say that is that it is true that you know these state, these swing state poll, polls are close, um, but they've been fairly consistently, most of them in Biden's direction for quite a while now. Um, and you know what that says is to me that there's some, even though there's gonna be error behind that and certainly a lot of volatility as we go forward, there is something real and fundamental, right? At least right now, that's driving preference for Biden in those swing states, which is important. The other thing I'd say is that um, Biden's national lead uh, for whatever we can take from it is fairly large at this point. It's larger than Clinton's was. And I think it's based on very different factors than what led to the, the peak of Clinton's lead in the summer of 2016. I think that many of the conditions in the country, including the economy, um, although I found it interesting that a, a recent poll, um, I can't remember which poll it was, um, showed that nearly half of Republicans thought the economy or perceived the economy to be going well, which I it says a lot about. Um, nevertheless, the economy is not in a favorable position for the incumbent. And, uh, you know, I, I think that those sorts of things are on Biden's side, uh, although it's very likely the race will tighten no matter what as we get toward November. And then of course the big wild card is, right, a reasonably fair and efficient electoral voting and electoral administration process, which is um, gonna be of course huge issues. Yeah, I wanna delve into the, the administration issues in, in, in more detail in a second. Uh, but I'm trying to think uh, how many, how often in presidential elections uh, do we see a major shift uh, in the, say, the last month or two uh, in, the, uh, in, in the polls from one candidate to another. Uh, my impression is that in most elections, uh, the candidate who's leading, uh, particularly uh, after the conventions, uh, tends to go ahead and, and win, win the race. Uh, I think, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, was it Reagan in 1980? Was there a big shift then? I'm, uh, there, I mean, if you just compare the the national polls around this time in a presidential election year, mid-August, to the outcome in November, there are a tremendous number of examples um, of, you know, switches, for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, John Kerry uh, was leading in the national polls around this time in 2004. Um, Michael Dukakis was leading quite healthily. Um, around this time in 1988. And that's in addition to obviously Hillary Clinton in 2016. And so it is not at all uncommon for folks who are leading in the national polls around this time to lose the general election. Okay, thanks, Matt. Uh, yeah. So again, I wanna push back a little bit on that. Adam's absolutely correct that those are prominent examples of leads that dissipated and, and disappeared in fact. 
Um, but those were much, much smaller leads than Biden has right now. Um, I have, you know, maybe half Biden size of his lead and, and even less in some cases. So is it possible that things will turn around greatly? Certainly, it's, it's, more, it's more than possible. But I think the odds are, um, you know, uh, I think Biden's odds, frankly, are better than those candidates were at the same point, you know, this many days out from Election Day. So I would agree with that. I think Biden's odds are better. But again, I want to really emphasize something that I've been emphasizing to a lot of people that I've talked to about this. Trump is doing worse than any uh, presidential candidate with or incumbent president, with the exception of maybe, maybe George W. Bush in 2004, who went on to win his reelection bid. Um, but he's also doing significantly better than the two presidents of the past 50 years who lost their reelection bits, those being George H.W. Bush and Jimmy Carter. So if you look at it that way, um, you kind of see this election as being very much one that's on the bubble, one that could go either way. So from that perspective, I really think that we need to be careful before saying that Biden has a really decisive lead. Well, <clears throat> do you think that for, for the election to shift towards Trump, is there going to have to be some decisive events? Uh, is there going to be something in the campaign that will have to occur uh, for that to, to, to happen? Uh, for those, for the, for in those battleground states, for example, uh, Trump to actually eke out a, a victory, uh, or can the campaign go? Uh, think conditions go pretty much the way they are, and nevertheless. Uh, voters will somehow uh, come back to Trump and, and, and give him victory in the key states? I think a little bit of both. So I, as Matt alluded to earlier, there will be, or I, I'm, I'm quite certain that there will be a tightening in the polls because that almost always happens as election day approaches. And I, but I also think the various campaign events could work in Trump's favor. The big ones being the debates, um, which, you know, there's, it's very hard for me to even envision the way these debates will work. But given the, the Biden, we, we know him to not be the most effective debater from, from the Democratic primary race. Uh, I think it's quite possible uh, that those uh, debates will cause a further tightening. Um, generally speaking, incumbent presidents do better than their challengers in debates, uh, although that might not be the case this year. Um, and there might be a variety of other exogenous factors, October surprises, who knows? I mean, this, this, there's already been so much that's happened this year. Um, it's, it's not at all implausible to um, assume, to expect that, it's not at all implausible that there will be several other major unanticipated events between now and November 3rd. Yeah, Matt? So, Again, I, I mainly agree with Adam, but maybe not exactly an emphasis. So uh, certainly there are some campaign related factors that could help Trump over the next few months and and all of these other exogenous things that may or may not happen. On the other hand, on, on some fundamental factors, the state of the economy, if the economy is more or less in the overall shape that it is now, um, number one, and number two, the pandemic. So, I mean, almost all the polling for a couple of months now shows that not just Democrats, but independents are extremely negative on the president's handling of the pandemic. And to the extent that that remains the case, um, and uh, as we go forward over the next few weeks, uh, and it's gonna 
to be a topmost issue. Um, it's one of those issues that is, uh, you know, just kind of came out of nowhere, of course, it's not the kind of thing that will typically affect an election, but I think it will be important. And if those two things remain more or less steady state, I still think that puts a, a, a big set of obstacles in front of the president. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, which, which really could be a problem for him. Yeah, and it's unlikely that uh, Trump, given the record of the last few weeks, is going to do anything to ameliorate either of those things. Uh, in fact, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder that both the pandemic and the economy might get much, much worse by November. Uh, <clears throat> the, the failure to, to enact uh, another uh, package of relief through the Congress uh, even if they get around to doing that sometime in September, uh, there's going to be a huge amount of economic pain uh, created by simply the fact that these this extra $600 of unemployment benefits is going away. Uh, you're going to see more and more stories, I think, of people being evicted from their homes in spite of Trump's supposed uh, executive order that was going to stop that. And the Democrats are going to make hay out of that. Uh, you're going to see probably a lot more stories of, uh, of people, you know, turning to food banks and, and the like, and that those images are not going to be helpful to Trump. And as far as the pandemic goes, um, you know, we might see, uh, you know, a huge, I mean, we've already had, you know, the, this great increase in, you know, Southern states, particularly uh, in the last few weeks, uh, we might see uh, more increases uh, as, as fall comes. Uh, the experts have been predicting that fall would be a very, very difficult time and a chance for a new wave of infections. Uh, and, uh, you know, if the pandemic gets a lot worse, then, then I think uh, that's going to be really bad uh, for Trump. I can't see him, uh, I, I really, frankly, can't see him overcoming that. Uh, but, uh, except maybe by messing around with election administration. So maybe we should talk about that for a minute. Uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, I, I, Adam, I think you summed up quite well the, the problems here and, and how that could really uh, skew the race and make it very, very uh, difficult. Uh, the prospect of, of uh, not having uh, votes counted until weeks after you know, November 3rd is certainly pretty high, and that those votes that need to be counted might be decisive, uh, particularly if there are close races in some of those battleground states. Uh, on the other hand, I'm wondering whether or not uh, this great focus on this problem in August, a focus brought about partly by Trump's uh, uh, bringing up again and again uh, his opposition to what he calls mail-in voting, uh, which keeps that in the news um, and makes, uh, I think, and creates pushback from uh, the, the Democrats and, and a lot of commentary uh, about uh, how Trump is uh, exaggerating the potentials for fraud, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this uh, brouhaha about the Postal, postal Service, uh, that, that that's happening now, and that creates an opportunity over the next weeks for election administrators in a lot of states to compensate uh, by, and, and the, the Democratic Party to compensate 
uh, by trying to come up with ways of overcoming uh, these obstacles. Uh, am, am I wrong about that? Uh, is there some hope there that, 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 that we've got some time to, to maybe work on this problem? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think you're right. In a certain sense, it's a good thing that all of this discussion is happening now. It gives election administrators at the state and local level time to figure things out, to work out the kinks and so forth. Um, but look, there's a number of things that need to be said about voting by mail, um, separate and apart from the particular issues that are going on this year. You know, my view is that the voting rights community made something of a mistake um, a few months back when it's, it appears to have decided that um, a massive campaign to get Americans to vote by mail this year um, was the way to go. I mean, I'm not saying that voting by mail shouldn't be a, a significant component of voting modalities this year due to the pandemic. Obviously, it should be. Uh, but um, I think it is incorrect to say that, you know, there aren't major problems with voting by mail. There are, even in the states that have been doing it for a long time, such as Colorado and Washington. Um, the number or the percentage of ballots um, that are submitted uh, via mail in states like Colorado and Washington um, that are rejected um, for a variety of reasons is significant. It's not huge. We're talking about, you know, I think in Colorado in 2016 or 2018, it was around 0.7%. Um, you know, but so it's, that's not a major percentage of the ballots that were cast, um, but we're talking about over 20,000 ballots um, in Colorado in recent elections that were rejected. That's definitely a large enough number to swing an election if an election is closed, you know, and those ballots were rejected for a variety of reasons. In some cases, they were returned after the deadline. In some cases, um, voters didn't sign the ballots where, where they were supposed to and so on and so forth. Um, and so there are issues with ballot rejections um, that exist in voting by mail in a normal election. Um, those issues are going to be compounded this year simply because so many states are transforming the voting by mail so quickly. Um, and in many of these states, voters are not familiar with the concept. Um, it's going to require a lot of education, a lot of public education um, to ensure that voters um, follow the proper protocols so that their ballots are actually counted. And, and that's something that worries me deeply. Matt. So I, I, I agree. I'm, I'm worried about that as well. I think it also needs to be said, though, that it makes it harder to run this process, especially in these unprecedented conditions, fairly and effectively when adequate funding is not forthcoming from either, in most cases, the state level because of budgetary problems and certainly the federal level. And, you know, so this is being used as a political pawn, um, you know, voting for, or not voting, but funding for electoral administration, you know, um, and especially, you know, just in terms of being able to deal with, so if you leave the vote by mail issue to the side for a second, just being able to deal with all of the extra costs that are gonna come from voting in person in a pandemic, right? Including workers, training, safety procedures. And so this isn't to say that under the best conditions, right, that, that there aren't going to be problems. Um, but I think that uh, with a different politics, you know, writ large, this, some of these things could be avoided. I'll also just say quickly, it, to the extent that it's becoming an issue, which I agree with you both, in some ways that could hurt um, Trump or backfire in some ways, also because 
some people who are reasonably sure and who they're going to vote for right now um, are going to take the advice of, say, uh, Michelle Obama, to use a prominent example from last night, and get moving on requesting their mail-in ballot applications to get their ballots in and take care to do all of this and to try to do it right, right? Um, and right now, um, you know, the conditions are not great for President Trump in terms of re-electoral chances, as we talked about. And to the extent that a bunch of votes against Trump are locked in right now from people who want to make sure their vote is properly counted or do what they can to make sure that, um, you know, this, these issues of electoral administration, vote by mail, and Trump's rhetoric around them could backfire in that way as well. I, I'm sure a lot of people will vote as early as possible. Um, a lot of anti-Trump voters will vote as early as possible. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. In fact, I, I, I have some personal anecdotes to respond to both of the things you said. Uh, Adam, on the comp complexities of voting by mail for the, for the first time this spring, uh, and, and I, I think maybe forever, uh, my wife and I voted absentee in the Rhode Island primary. Uh, at least I don't have any memory of doing it before. I may have, you know, 40 years ago, but, uh, but it was a new thing for me. We always go in person, right? And so I found it a little, a little complicated to have to read through the instructions and figure out, you know, there's two envelopes to deal with and you've got to put them in an envelope and get it in the right envelope to mail back and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And even marking the ballot, uh, figuring out exactly uh, how to, how to mark it uh, was a little more complicated than uh, I find when I go to my local polling uh, booth. And so for me, a PhD in political science, uh, you know, uh, to be, worrying about, am I doing this right? Uh, I imagine that most voters are going to find, who haven't had experience with absentee ballots, are going to find it difficult. Uh, uh, and, and, but, but Matt, I also uh, <coughs> agree uh, with you that uh, those of us who are thinking of voting uh, by mail uh, have a lot of incentive to get on it early. Uh, I've already downloaded my absentee ballot application for the November election. It's sitting on our uh, in our kitchen, uh, waiting to be filled out. Uh, uh, my wife was telling me uh, this morning that we needed to do that today and get it in the mail uh, so that we can get our absentee ballots. Uh, and we're, uh, I guess, probably six weeks away or six or seven weeks away from the deadline. So, so I think maybe there's a lot of voters like us who are gonna, gonna do this. Uh, one last point, though, uh, that, that I guess builds on what I was saying before about the, 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 the time to anticipate these problems. Uh, I'm wondering whether or not there, even though there's been a lot of talk uh, about emphasizing mail-in voting, whether or not that there might be a shift <clears throat> now uh, and that there's going to be more uh, encouragement of people to, in fact, opt to vote uh, in person. Um, uh, you know, the, in spite of the, the COVID epidemic, I, I, I personally don't think that uh, voting in person is going to be a big uh, transmitter of the virus. Uh, it, it, you know, going into a voting location, uh, if you're standing in line, a socially distance, have a mask on, uh, <clears throat> I'm sure they'll have plexiglass barriers up, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
and you're in you're in the voting area, uh, you know, for five minutes while you're filling out your ballot. So uh, there's a very low chance of acquiring the 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 the, uh, the virus. So uh, I think probably Adam, you're right. It was probably a tactical mistake to emphasize this mail-in stuff so early and not think about how you can make personal voting safe. Yeah, that's exactly right, Bill. Um, what you just said is is more or less what I wanted to say. I think the voting rights community in this country made an error when they when they spent the past several months focusing exclusively on dramatically expanding voting by mail, when they should have also emphasized the importance of expanding different um, avenues of in-person voting, in particular expanding early voting, early in-person voting in lots of states, adding polling places and so forth so that people could vote early um, in person, but in a situation where there it would be much less likely that there would be long lines. Um, and as a result, it, that it would be much less likely that the virus could be spread. Uh, I think it's unfortunate that the voting rights community um, didn't do that, but I would expect that now as a result of a lot of the things that we've been talking about, that there will be a greater emphasis on that. Um, there's not all that much that can be done now. Um, state legislatures aren't in session and so forth. Um, there are things that can be done on the margins, but by and large, I think we're going to have to live um, with the election administration regimes in the various states that are already set up. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is going back to um, your experience, Bill, voting in the uh, in the uh, April presidential primary here in Rhode Island. So I conducted a statistical analysis of rejected ballot, uh, mail-in ballot applications um, in Rhode Island in the April presidential primary uh, for a, a local reporter here, because of course Rhode Island is a state where uh, voting by mail doesn't exist, which means in order to vote absentee, you have to request an absentee ballot via an application. Um, and it turns out that there's massive inequalities across jurisdictions just in this little state um, in terms of whose uh, applications to vote by mail gets accepted. You know, in some of the low SES jurisdictions in Rhode Island, like uh, Central Falls and Pawtucket, um, the percentage of applications to vote by mail that were rejected um, was around seven or eight percent. In other jurisdictions, it was close to zero percent. So this is some. This is what I'm talking about: the problems with vote by mail that weren't getting a lot of attention several months ago. Voting by mail introduces tremendous inequalities into the electoral system, and and this is something that uh, you know I'm not exactly sure what can be done to address this issue for November, but it's certainly something that um, that you know uh, policymakers need to think about. As, as expanding voting by mail permanently as discussed in the states. All right, I, I, I think that the, the inequalities that Adam talks about are extremely troubling and extremely important. Uh, although I think we need to see it in the larger context of the inequalities in our voting system in general that go beyond vote by mail. So um, they have to do with just procedural hurdles, lack of um, voter education, lack of attention to voter education. Um, and and you know resource allocation right across communities right even for in-person voting and so any effort to expand voting by mail for example on a more permanent basis right after the, this election is going to have to take into account right ways to mitigate those inequalities i mean e even just simple things like um 
and any additional procedural step that you have to put in place, like having to fill out a separate application to request a ballot, even though the state will automatically grant it, some states will automatically grant it. In other words, it's not like they're going to reject it because you don't meet a some states require certain criteria, of course, but you put putting just an extra piece of paperwork in the way is going to make it harder and those those difficulties are going to fall disproportionately and inequitably on different communities, right? So that's why, um, you know, loosening those restrictions, right? Um, those sorts of things, not requiring, um, say, witness signatures, um, or in some states, I think notary publics have to witness, right? You marking your ballot, which are, of course, putting additional and inequitable barriers in place. So, I mean, over the long term, those are the kinds of things that have to be dealt with for vote by mail and they're part of larger inequities that would need to be that, that have been problems in the united states right for for decades and decades yeah well uh, you know assuming that biden and the democrats win uh th this experience with, with with all these electoral problems may finally focus attention on some reforms in these areas i would think uh i mean already the the democrats passed the voting new voting rights act and uh, in, at at uh, the Congressman Lewis's funeral, Obama was calling for a new Voting Rights Act, uh, which I think would include probably provisions having to do with election administration, uh, so that I, I think there's some real potential for some, uh, you know, putting partisan partisanship aside. Uh, I think it's good for our democracy that we have a, a smooth and, and understandable voting system. Uh, but I, I, I think it's going to take a, a, a democratic administration to enact those. I, I, I can't, if, if Trump wins, I can't imagine that there's going to be any kind of uh, reform uh, in this area. But uh, a Biden victory, and, and particularly if the, if the Democrats can capture a majority in the Senate, uh, we might see some real reforms. Uh, for the first time in my, in, in my lifetime, uh, I, there's just a huge, huge amount of of interest and, and concern for, uh, you know, how we vote uh, in our democracy. Uh, and we could talk about other things like, uh, like ranked choice voting and, and, and the like, which have, you know, become a big part of the conversation of reforming the, uh, or abolishing the electoral college is very much on the agenda now. Uh, and it, you know, it's never been uh, before. And I think we might see uh, all those things addressed in the future. Okay, well, uh, let's. Uh, one thing I want you want to want your thoughts real quick on uh, Biden's uh, vice presidential pick, Kamala Harris. Uh, uh, was this the obvious choice, or was was all the drama uh, really kind of beside the point that it was going to be Kamala all along? Uh, what, what do you guys think? And is she a good choice? Uh, what What are the pluses and minuses of a Kamala Harris, uh, vice presidential candidacy. Uh, Matt, you want to go first on this one? Sure. So uh, I think it was a fairly obvious choice given who Joe Biden is and given kind of the sort of political conditions, right, that we're in right now. I thought it was a good choice, a solid choice in terms of solidifying um, uh, Biden's position. Uh, I, I think that some of the talk about progressives and the left wing of the party being you know, upset that he didn't choose someone more to the left um, is a little overblown because I think that 
there's a tremendous amount of unity behind this ticket on the Democratic side, um, more than there was four years ago. And I think that um, that uh, if anything, Kamala Harris only sort of adds to and kind of crystallizes that unity. Um, no matter who Biden chose, there were going to be massive attacks against that person, against um, that woman, by because he said that he was going to choose a woman uh, by the Republican side and by Trump. And so in some ways, it's not as uh, uh, risky to choose um, a woman of color from an electoral standpoint, because no matter what, there would be vicious attacks against that person and attempts to paint that person as a radical, which is a big part of the overall Trump campaign strategy. So um, I think that it was a solid choice and um, uh, uh, a safe choice in, in, in certain ways. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I would agree with uh, what both what Matt said and what, what you said, Bill. And I would agree with the punditocracy on this one, too. This was a, a fairly unsurprising um, conventional pick. And, and my reaction to it, in fact, was, you know, we went through this tremendous rigmarole in which all these different women were considered and gained the spotlight briefly, only to only uh, to have things turn out that, you know, Biden picked the woman that everybody thought was going to be the nominee in the first place. Uh, you know, like, what was the point of this whole process? Um, from a historical perspective, I think it's sort of indicative of the fact that we've kind of entered a, a new era of balancing considerations in terms of vice presidential picks. You know, it used to be that geographic balance was one of the most important factors that um, nominees considered when selecting their VP nominees. In other words, if, you know, a Northern presidential nominee would pick a Southerner or vice versa. Um, and it seems like today, increasingly in the Democratic Party, and I would expect in the Republican Party in the future too, demographic considerations and demographic balancing is gonna be significantly more important than regional balancing. Um, you know, Joe Biden as a white man chose Kamala Harris in part because she's a black woman. Um, and, you know, this speaks to something um, that I've written and thought about a lot, which is, you know, the declining importance of region in American politics and the rising importance of non-regional, non-geographical social identities like, like race and gender and so forth. Um, I would also say, you know, a lot of people have been asking whether this selection is going to make a difference. Uh, you know, the political science research that's out there on this suggests that vice presidential selections rarely matter. Um, and, and when they matter, uh, they tend not to matter in, in the way that a lot of us think they would. They, um, there's not much evidence that voters of particular demographic groups vote for a candidate because of his uh, VP nominee. Um, a new book out suggests that the minimal way in which vice presidential nominees matter is in terms of changing voters' perceptions of the presidential candidate himself or herself. Uh, and I just, I don't see much of a reason to think that voters are going to change their um, perceptions of Joe Biden this year on account of the fact that he picked Kamala Harris. So I kind of think that in the long run, it probably won't make much of a difference. Yeah, Matt. Can I quickly just jump in and say that, um, again, I agree historically, right? Adam's right historically about that with the impact of VP choices. Nevertheless, this is an unusual time, unusual circumstances. And I think in this case, choosing someone like Kamala Harris could be really important because turnout is going to be very important, in particular, given the electoral administration problems that we just talked about, the importance of a, of a sort of, if not a landslide, then a, a, a very 
you know, sort of decisive win for Biden. The importance that that side, that Biden side places on that means turnout and especially turnout among likely Democratic voters, including African-American voters who turned out at lower levels, as we all know, in 2016 than had been expected by many people. So having someone like Harris on the ticket, um, not just because of her racial identity, but because she brings a different edge, I think, to the ticket, a different edge of excitement um, and, and energy um, and potentially could inspire and help to motivate greater turnout. So not necessarily changing perceptions of Biden, um, but changing perceptions of the, the importance of voting, right? Um, and what the meaning of a vote, right, against Trump would be um, for people who may not otherwise vote, if that makes sense. I think that, th that that might be true. It's it's a little hard for me to envision, you know, black voters in, let's say, Milwaukee or Detroit or Philadelphia turning out to vote for Biden specifically because Harris is on the ticket. I could be wrong about this. I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm not sure. I don't have a lot of evidence, but it, it that doesn't seem it doesn't seem very likely to me that that's the way uh, a lot of voters would think about things. On the other hand, I do I, I do think that, you know, there was a, in the lead up to, to Biden's selection, we heard a lot about how um, African-American political leaders um, were kind of sending messages to Biden and his campaign that he better pick a black woman. You know, there was there's a lot of talk about Biden picking Gretchen Whitmer, for example, and and black political leaders. Um, you know, quickly sent messages that 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 they wouldn't, you know, view that. Um, very favorably. And, and so I guess it's possible that kind of um, had Biden picked a white woman as his nominee, um, a lot of black political leaders would have expressed um, some disappointment and that kind of would have filtered down to black voters somehow, thereby influencing turnout. That's possible. I don't know. Um, but I, I'm a little skeptical that, that this will make a difference. I, I can just say... Oh, go ahead. I was going to lead in your direction on this, Matt. I, I think, though, though I think you're right, Adam, uh, there's, it's, it's not likely that picking Kamala Harris is going to be a major factor in attracting a lot of black voters. Uh, nevertheless, there's an affirmation there that at the very margins might be helpful uh, to Biden. Uh, you know, there might be a few reluctant uh, uh, black voters, voter, black voters who felt that the Democratic Party has let them down over the years, and this 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 pushes against that. You know, I think I think dismay with Trump in the African American community by itself is the major motivator. Uh, but you know, I, Kamala Harris probably pushes that along a bit. Uh, is that what you're going to say, Matt? Basically, and I just was going to add the important context of the racial justice and anti-police brutality protests that we've been experiencing in this country and how that adds, an, adds a certain backdrop that perhaps makes Harris's choice more important. Uh, again, on the margins, right? We have to remember that Trump won some of these battleground states by very thin margins and some up, upping of turnout in certain parts of those states could have made a difference, right, in the outcome. And so on the margins... Um, this affirmation, you know, this is despite Harris's somewhat inconsistent previous, uh, you know, career as a prosecutor on some of these criminal justice issues. Um, there is an affirmation there. And she has a fairly progressive record um, recently, right, in terms of what she's been doing um, in Washington, um, which I think only helps her and I think helps Biden in this context. Okay, thanks, guys. So to finish off here, uh, 
can we talk a little bit about the strategies of the two sides? Um, I think the the Democrats just last evening at the convention uh, began to lay out what seems to be a strategy, which is a strategy to expose, uh, put, put, I put it at the center, you know, the kinds of things I think that Michelle Obama was talking about, just, just grave concern over uh, Trump's character. Uh, and is he up for the job of being a president? This is going to be a very much, I would think, for the Biden campaign, an anti-Trump campaign. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think, looking at the Bernie Sanders contribution, laying out some, you know, vision, you know, some some policies that I think are appealing uh, to a lot of people. Uh, so, am I right about that? Is that is that what we're going to be hearing from the Democrats between now and November third? I think that's right. I think uh, the Biden campaign is is going to make increasing turnout a, a major priority. Matt alluded to that earlier. I think it's absolutely the case that um, the Biden campaign views turnout as essential. Um, and so, you know, getting out the vote is going to be a major part of what they do. There's going to be a lot more in the way of mobilization than persuasion. Um, I think it's, it's kind of impossible to um, exaggerate the importance of election-related litigation in this campaign. And I think, you know, both campaigns um, have massive election law teams that are that are prepared to litigate all sorts of, you know, controversies regarding ballot access um, until and after election day. Um, and, and so I think, you know, litigation is an increasingly important component of both of the strategy of both campaigns in a way that um, has started to be the case in previous presidential elections, but is really amped up this year. Matt? Any other thoughts? Yeah, so I would agree with with what both of you said, and, and just say if you just look at the convention, right? We've only had one night night of it so far, but sort of the plan laid out for this week, I think, lays out the Democrat strategy pretty well, right? Which is basically, right? We're going to run on some broad issues of, of of course, the response to the pandemic, the economic fallout, and racial justice issues, and we're going to give you you the American electorate a number of different reasons why the current administration is not fit or capable of handling any of these things. So Michelle Obama laid out the character issues. Um, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders laid out um, the sort of more policy-based um, differences, right, between Biden and, and, and Trump. Um, and we're going to see uh, leadership, right, um, or lack thereof, right, become an issue this week as well. And so basically, it's an anti-Trump strategy, meaning it's it, they're trying to make Biden look like a good candidate as they should, but it's really not so much about for Biden. It's against Trump. And it's saying, look, there are many reasons to vote against Trump, even for Republicans. Right. You may disagree with some of our more left leaning policy ideas, but some of the Republicans who spoke last night were saying, well, here are some other important reasons to vote against Trump. Right. And so it's sort of, um, you know, really moving forward with that strategy and oftentimes just a purely what seems like a purely negative message like that doesn't work very well, but in these conditions, I think it, it might work for the Democrats. Yeah, um, there was a really interesting article in the Washington Post yesterday that talked about the latest Washington Post poll um, of, the, of the national electorate um, in which voters were asked, is your vote for your candidate actually a vote for your candidate or against the other candidate? And it turns out that um, among Biden voters, 
most uh, Biden voters view their vote as being a vote against Trump, um, whereas most Trump voters actually vote view their vote as being for Trump, not against Biden. Uh, and and as as Matt said, you know, having a the Biden campaign strategy of making the campaign entirely about Trump is rather unorthodox, uh, but there's good reason to believe that in this particular instance, it might work. So what's Trump's strategy here? Is there, is there a strategy? Is, uh, I mean, I, well, one of the things that I've thought about is that if you think back to March when the uh, pandemic uh, was taking hold, uh, that, that there was a clear Trump strategy that could have been quite successful uh, had he uh, stepped up and been kind of the, the general fighting the pandemic and organized the federal government uh, uh, and, and the like. Uh, maybe, I, I don't think he really is, is uh, uh, capable of that, uh, both in terms of competence or uh, his uh, sort of uh, approach to, 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 to his job. Uh, but, you know, had he, had, had he done that, that, that would have been, it seems to me, a very, very successful strategy for him. But, but, he, but he's not done that. So, so what, what, what strategy does he have? It's, it's a peculiar thing. Everything that we're reading about the Trump campaign, um, like what's going on inside the Trump campaign right now, suggests that it's a chaotic operation, that's a disorganized operation, one that's full of palace intrigue, right? And, and uh, that's not one would think what you want your campaign to look like or what you want your campaign to be. On the other hand, that's pretty much what the Trump campaign was in 2016, right? And he won. So, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Trump doesn't need a really well-oiled machine that, you know, um, promotes a very consistent message. Maybe Trump just doesn't need that to win, given how polarized and closely divided the American electorate is. That's actually sort of my view. I don't, I don't think there is a, a, a clear strategy that the campaign is, is adopting based on everything that I've read. Uh, but I'm not actually sure that the campaign or that Trump needs one. So I would, so I agree with, I just want to go back to something Bill said first about how Trump had an opportunity when the pandemic started to really make this, sad to say, kind of an electoral plus for him, had he handled it differently. There is a way it could have been kind of a national security, put that in air quotes, emergency, and the leader is going to help sort of lead us out of this. Though that ship has sailed, um, I, I think that there is very little coherent strategy in an odd way. And I talk about this with my students in my campaign communication class. We were talking about this um, during the midterm elections two years ago, that in an odd way, the lack of strategy can be a strategy. What I mean by that is that it allows different parts of the campaign and different surrogates for the campaign to say different things to different kinds of voters in different conditions. And I think the media environment helps with that, frankly, and the way that so ads can be targeted through social media and through different sorts of um, other technologies. And so I think what they're trying to do is cobble together a win, right, with kind of um, a, a very um, disaggregated or, or sort of what seems to the outside to be an inconsistent strategy. The other thing I'll say quickly is that um, it, oddly, you know, normally one wouldn't expect an incumbent president to run um, a campaign that's really based on uh, sort of attacking Right. And really what this is, is attack, attack, attack. Right. It's attacking Biden to the extent that there is a coherent message so far. It's attacking Biden and Harris as being tools of the radical left, of being 
tools of disorder, right? The strong law and order message to try to get so-called suburban voters. Um, and it seems to me that's unusual because a president should be running on his or her record, right, at this point, um, and fending off attacks and then making strategic attacks on the other side. Here, um, perhaps because there doesn't seem to be a lot to run on, right, in terms of record or perhaps for other reasons, it's about attacking the other ticket. And the last thing I'll say with that is, and Adam mentioned that poll, right, Trump voters largely saying we're voting for Trump, Democratic voters saying we're voting against Trump. That makes Trump's strategy seem a little strange on another level as well, because, right, um, if most of your voters or the people you expect to vote for you say that they're, they're voting for you, then why is your campaign strategy simply about making the other side look bad, right? You would think that it would be you know, sort of trying to kind of play up your record, your persona, your leadership, um, rather than, you know, the opposite. Uh, though, when you think about back to the 2016 campaign and the many analyses of sort of what happened, uh, there's a lot of evidence that uh, what Trump managed to do, the way he got votes was by provoking outrage and a lot of resentment on the part of his electorate. That is, uh, and, and, and much of this was racially tinged, obviously. Uh, there's been a lot of studies of the extent to which Trump voters uh, exhibit a lot of racial resentment, uh, white Trump voters. Um, and um, my, my, my guess is, I mean, it looks to me like Trump is running the, the same game plan. Uh, uh, and, and part of his, his attacks on, on, the, on the ticket on Biden and Harris are not so much attacks on them or on the Democratic Party, really, but rather uh, attacks on uh, trends in the culture that uh, a lot of Americans are anxious about. Uh, the, the increasing diver the demographic diversity, uh, the perception, of, particularly among, among uh, many white voters, particularly, particularly non-college educated white voters, that they have been uh, somehow uh, left out of the game, uh, and 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 that and that the blame lies with uh, with uh, the the rising black and brown populations that somehow spe have special advantages, uh, and I think. Uh, I think that seems to be Trump's game plan is to try to repeat that. Uh, my question is, is it going to be a successful this time? Uh, right. I, I think I think that's exactly right. Um, everything that I'm reading about uh, the Trump campaign suggests that they're largely trying to repeat um, what happened in 2016 um, by focusing on those white working class voters that you were referring to, Bill. And I think that's reflected in, in what what I'm hearing or what I'm reading about Trump's electoral college strategy. I mean, I alluded to this earlier. I don't think Trump is trying to expand the electoral map very much. I think he's trying to win with the states, the, the majority of the states that he uh, won last time. Um, states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania that, that you know, have a lot of these blue collar white voters that are particularly susceptible to these appeals. And the fact that uh, the polls in these states suggest that the race in them is, is quite close suggests that, you know, this strategy could be successful, um, that he might be able to repeat what he did in 2016. 
Um, having, having said that, there is also the question of black turnout, right? Black turnout in, in the states I was referring to is really important as well. And if Democrats can, can boost black turnout substantially, um, then, then that will neutralize whatever advantage Trump has among these white working class voters. So it, it, the strategy could work. I agree with you both. It's largely kind of a repeat of that strategy. But of course, the conditions are really, really different. Most obvious one being he's running as a challenger coming out of nowhere, so-called non-establishment candidate four years ago. He's now the incumbent. Um, he also, uh, you know, to the extent that the, you know, say older voters, right, which were older white voters and really important part of Trump's coalition four years ago, and also non-college educated whites, which will also be an important part of whatever, you know, uh, vote voting coalition he's able to put together. He's, the polls show that, again, polls are volatile, right? But the polls show that he's lost, he's, he's lost some support among those folks compared to what he had. Now, did he, is he gonna lose enough so that he loses the election? Is he not able to, to get these narrow victories in these Midwest states? Who knows, right? We're not sure. But that support, there, there's evidence that some of that support, even among whites, is fraying right, and has been fraying over the summer. So it's another reason for me to believe that although it's highly plausible that Trump would win, for all the reasons we've talked about, it is an uphill climb, right, according to kind of the political conditions and the fundamentals that he's facing right now. Yeah, and actually that makes his attack in the post office, you know, really counterproductive. I think particularly among older voters, I think that's completely backfiring because uh, being an older voter myself, uh, uh, unlike you young folks who deal with electronic stuff, uh, you know, I do a lot of my, my, my business through the mail. Uh, you know, I get my check stubs through the mail still. I, uh, I, I write out checks to, you know, pay my bills and because uh, I don't trust uh, doing everything online. And so older voters are very dependent upon the post office uh, and particularly those who get prescription drugs and you know, uh, certainly around our household, uh, we're worried about the post office. Uh, aside from the election, uh, we've noticed that our our ma our mail is slowed down, <laughs> and 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 that's 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 a subject of conversation between my my spouse and I. We're we're worried about that, and I think if we're kind of typical as as older voters, uh, those conversations are going to happen elsewhere, and and that might really really harm Trump. Uh, as we go go forward. Okay, so we've been going for a little over an hour now, uh, and I think just scratch the surface. There's so much to say about this election. We're going to have to reconvene, perhaps, with some of our other colleagues. Uh, I want us to get together uh, pretty soon to talk about the Senate races, which I think are extremely uh, fascinating. We'll have to bring in uh, maybe uh, Professor Camerano and uh, Professor Heron for those those discussions. Uh, and then uh, also, I think uh, as the election unfolds, I think so uh, when we get closer to November 3rd, uh, I think we can have some more insights on exactly how this is going to play out and, and what kinds of concerns we might have about uh, just the integrity of the election process. Uh, I think that's a huge, a huge topic for us uh, in the coming weeks. So, uh, um, um, Matt Guardino and, and Adam Myers, thanks so much for your insights. You know, I always learn a lot uh, talking to you guys, uh, and it really makes me think about things, and I hope uh, 
our, our listeners have found this uh, of value as well. Uh, so, so thanks uh, again for joining us, and we'll we'll be getting together soon uh, for another podcast. Uh, and thanks to Chris Judge of PC's Office of Marketing and Communications for his help with this podcast. And most of all, many thanks to our listeners. Please tell four friends to subscribe to your Beyond Your News feed wherever they get their podcasts.